Hello, everybody. This is Bethany, not Matt. Don't be too bummed out, but you know, he's making me do some of these things too. I got to get everyone excited for the episode. Uh, today, it's pretty awesome. We're hearing Matt's story. He talks a lot about um, some drug addiction as a teenager, suicide awareness, how to deal with an unexpected pregnancy, and how he found meaning and purpose at the end of all this. There's a lot of info and a lot of wisdom coming from Matt today, so I hope you guys all listen up. Hello, and welcome to the Finding Strength Podcast. My name is Bethany Tenney. I am the therapist for the day, and we are going to be interviewing Matt Quackenbush. That's me. In case you didn't know, I'm on this podcast too. Yes. And, and I'm going to be... Bethany's literally right now. So we're in, we're in my office, my home office where I do therapy. Bethany's literally sitting in the chair that I sit in to do therapy, and I'm sitting while my clients sit on I, the couch. This is going to be awesome. I'm excited. So I guess we got to do a recap. Last yeah. week was Sete. Hope you guys all enjoyed that. That was so awesome to hear his story and hear what he does, and kind of just get a little bit into who Sete is. Yeah, his story blew a lot of people's minds. Like I, uh, I said in the little description thing there, he, man, what that guy does day in and day out. That takes a special person it for really sure. Does. Oh yeah, he's he's um, strong guy, strong heart. Got a lot of really good feedback from that one. I know a lot of people liked his story. So actually, I, I hope we can get set down again in the future and kind of hear a little bit more of his story, more about what he does and get into the nitty gritty a little bit. I think people might like that. Oh, so. for sure. And then to hear him say how he <clears throat> he just looks at everybody else like they're good people. I'm like, that's incredible. I can't do that. I'm working on it every day. <laughs> <laughs> so today, the plan is everyone got to hear my story. Everyone got to hear me cry. Matt's turn. So make, we are get going to make me cry. Is that your goal? We get, I mean, it's not a very lofty goal. I'm a crier. <laughs> we get to hear who is Matt Quackenbush. So Matt, tell us, tell us who you are. Just a little bit about your job, your family, that kind of thing. So what do you want me to start at the beginning? Do you want me to start like from birth? Uh, first tell just, it. No, first tell us who you are. Like, okay. so, I am a certified social worker uh, by professional title. That's how I would identify myself first. But I think more importantly, and the thing that's most important to me in my life is, is family. Husband, father, lover. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I do a lot of soul searching. That's kind of my thing. Like I've been a really deep thinker since I was a little, little tiny kid. And I've always been very empathetic. It's just like a, I, I'd say a gift, if that's a thing or whatever. I don't know. It's just something that naturally just is part of who I am. And because I'm able to be empathetic, naturally, I became a therapist. Um, I worked for about seven years at a place called Telos in Orem. Uh, I started there in 2007. Is that right? 2007. And I uh, worked with uh, Troubled Youth. It's a treatment center for kids. They stay there for about 10 months. And um, I, kind of, I fell into that job. Brindy helped me find that job. My sister was working there first. And I kind of fell into that job. And it, it just was like a home for me. I really found a lot of value and strength in um, helping people. Okay, and so it, you say treatment center, but what um, drugs... Substance abuse, yeah. um, yes, what yes. kind of thing? Both of those. Eating disorders, what Some kind of thing? Some eating disorder stuff. Okay. So <clears throat> this first one that I worked at, yeah, they're, they're troubled teenage boys. Okay. And there was anywhere, it depends on when, what period of time I worked there. There's, at the end, was like 50 kids that lived there. And they lived in this residential treatment center. They lived there 24 hours a day, seven days a week for, on average, 10 months. And their parents pay a crap ton of money we're talking tens thousand dollars a month it's a lot a lot of money to live there so it's for the super rich it was which was interesting that's that'll play into my story well um and then people who are really desperate right people who mortgage their homes to send yeah. their kids there whatever they, they can have do. to do it and so I, I found these kids and i've always been really good with kind of connecting to teenagers because my story goes back to my teenage you know 
life. And that's, that's when I really fell away from, I think, who I was. I think I knew who I was as a kid more than most people do because I loved to help people as a child. Like I was the kid that in elementary school, I went and sat with the kid. My, one of my best friends had a wheelchair. And I would just hang out with the, the kids in the wheelchairs and the handicapped kids and I like help them eat their lunch. Like that's what I did in elementary school. That's awesome. And so that was just kind of who I was and, and what I found value in as a child, like a young child. And um, then I kind of grew out of that, I guess, around middle school years where I tried to be like popular and cool. Yeah. And eighth grade, um, I kind of fell in with a different crowd. And it was a crowd of people who I really connected with for sure. But why, why do you think you connected with them? Because they were exiled more uh, Exiled is probably the wrong word. They just were, they were different, and I got that. Um, like want, rebellious different? Yeah, rebellious different. Okay. Um, music was a huge part of my life, always has been. Mm-hmm. Being that really emotionally, like empathetic, deep-feeling person that I am. Yeah, music, like the energy from the music. Yeah, music moves me a lot. So I met, I met, I played a lot of music growing up. So I met these guys that I was in the band with. I play, I play uh, the drums and guitar and piano and all sorts of different instruments. Anyway, so these guys were really into music, and we became really tight. And then um, all through high school, just had this really, really tight group of friends who I just loved. They were great people and we partied great i was gonna say great people but did society look at them as great people or is that you just saw how great they were i i don't know i i would say probably not because they're they're teenage partiers so that's sometimes tough yeah wild children yeah we weren't like the popular crew per se um and we kind of didn't care i think was which was kind of unique to teenage kids i yeah, for early sure. on that was definitely what I wanted. I wanted to be like one of the cool kids, but then once I found my my home, I guess you could say, with these guys, we just love music and love to party and have fun and do a bunch of drugs. I was gonna say. So, at what yeah. what age, what point in your life did you start to do drugs? I started. I started smoking weed. That was kind of the big thing um, in my sophomore year of high school. Um, that Actually, it was that summer, freshman to sophomore year. And then that became a big part of my life, kind of underground for years and years, all through high school into my early college years. And it was like this enhancer for me to feel more deeply. It was like a spiritual thing. Mm-hmm. I got into other substances and stuff too, a little more wild and crazy never like heroin or like meth or anything like that but that was ne- that was never a thing that interested me but more just like stuff that can make me feel really deeply mm-hmm. and like have these experiences and learn about myself and understand the human connection which human is so different yeah. like don't you think i i look at um drugs alcohol type of stuff and i would say most people use them to go numb or to not feel so the fact that you wanted to take them to feel deeper, that that's interesting to me. Because I don't feel, and especially for a teenager, I, I don't think teenagers want to feel a lot of times. Yeah. I think part of it for me was maybe some of that. Um, and maybe that's just the story that I told myself that I didn't. That made you feel better about it? And maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I've never. So how many years like were you into that, to the drug scene? Um... Four, five years. Okay. Yeah, sophomore, junior, senior, freshman in college, so four years. And then I went on a mission for the Mormon church, which was really cool. It was actually a really cool experience. Like, I loved it. Where'd you go? I went to Argentina. Okay. Served well there. Had a good time. Was really successful in on my mission. I kind of I turned a corner, I guess you could say. Like, I... I like stopped my old life, cold turkey, and like started this new life. Did you stop your drug and that type of thing to go on a mission? Yeah. Or was it before that? Was that you're like, I'm gonna stop doing this because I'm gonna go serve a mission? Now. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Because I had a I had a a best friend who we kind of mirrored each other and we did everything together. His name was Darren. He's probably listening to this right now. What up, Darren? <laughs> um, his story's interesting too, actually. We might get him on the podcast one of these days. 
and we did a lot of fun stuff together. And he he went off to Hawaii to go to school, and I came up here to Utah to go to school, and kind of lived similar paths, I guess. I got way, way, way into music, like became my life, as in like failed out of college practically. I was gonna say, is this before or after mission? Before mission. Okay. So we're ninth grade now. Um, ninth, sorry. Freshman year of college. I apologize. Okay. So you're, you're past high school. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. We're jumping all around here. Anyway. So yeah. 13th grade. Freshman. College. Met a bunch of cool people up here. I moved to my grandparents. I went to Weber State for a year. Played music there. I was there on a music scholarship. Thought that's what I wanted to do. Studied music. And still was in to partying and the kind of the the drug scene if you will but it was more it was less than it was in high school for sure and then my friend was off at school and he decided he wanted to go on a mission so you're like okay i was like sure why not i'll freaking go on a mission it's cool and that's kind of what we do in my family like you just go on a mission it's it's the next step yeah it's an expectation more or less and so i went cool experience came home um had let's see couple what i have like 18 months i met some really cool guys on my mission really cool friends came home lived with them and um that time was it was a weird time for me because it i think the thing about that time is i was in this like identity crisis of what i wanted to do and who i wanted to be because music had always been my thing and who i was and like what i really really loved to do and then I remembered more or less that I really liked helping people. And like I wanted to make people better versions of themselves. I think I found that on, on, on the mission for the Mormon church. And um, after I did that, came back, that became more of like what I wanted to do. And so I just kind of naturally fell into Telos, the place I was talking about before with these kids. Um, and my, my wife now, Brindy, helped me find that. But before before we got... To Telos, we, you know, we had, it was rough for me and Brindy at the start. Like our, our story begins very rough. I was going to say, before we get into the Brindy story. Yeah. I No, I have a question. I just, you know, coming from a religious family and you talk about your party years and being a teenager doing those things. What kind of, um, maybe division did that create between you and your family? Because that's a tough thing when you come from a family who's, that's not okay. And that's not the norm, I guess. At least it wasn't in my family. If you were doing that stuff, you were like, uh, a little bit of an outcast. Yeah. Um, is there a lot of shame that comes along with that coming from such a religious background? For sure. Yeah, it was something that I had to deal with big time. I, I, my, like I kind of kept it underground, if you will. Like, so it was more secretive. Yeah, for sure. Like it wasn't a overt thing that I was doing all the time. Like it wasn't, it didn't, it didn't really define me like being the party guy. Like, like I said, music was my thing. It was to enhance the musical, whatever the artist. In me. So you weren't necessarily what we would have called a stoner where no. everybody eyes are bloodshot. Everyone no. knows what you're doing all the time. Okay. So it's more just like a random here and there. Was, Not, no one really knows well, just your friends. Okay. So one of the things I, I think, and maybe this is just my experience but, like, that's just what you did in high school. Like, people mm. just, you partied, you had fun, you went around, you played, you were a child. Yeah. And that's the, a lot of, that's you're a way that a lot of Testing things out, you're. Play. Yeah. And you know? it didn't mean you were gonna become a drug addict as an adult, and it didn't mean that you're gonna become this loser in life. Mm-hmm. It was just, it's experimenting. It's, you know, whether, whether or not that's dangerous, everyone can say for themselves. But I think as a teenager, it's kind of what we do. For sure. You're, dabbling in different things whether it's what you're going to be as a career or maybe yes maybe some drug alcohol situations and anyways so there's it didn't in the overall scheme of things did not negatively affect your life at that point no okay as a as a kid no because the consequences for doing that stuff as a kid if if you can more or less keep it well managed they're really they're minimal but when you become an adult and you get back from a mission and... And you're still wanting to do those same and things. And you're still kind of trying to figure out like your life and how that all works for you. That becomes some sort of like 
this this dual world that you end up living in. And so that's just something that I've I've battled with, you know, on and off mm-hmm. for a long time. And even even my early years of my marriage and stuff like that. Like there were points during our marriage where I would drink and Brittany didn't know. And I was hiding it from her. Yeah. Right? And there were points in our in our um where I was with my friends in college and I would drink and they wouldn't know. And that to me, that's, that's more scary. When you're hiding it, when you're not being you. Right. And that was, that was to numb. That wasn't to enhance anything. That wasn't to make life better. That was as a kid, it was fun. As an adult, I'm confused. I'm kind of lost with who I am because I hadn't found like the telos thing yet. I didn't know, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know how life, I don't know what to do with myself. Well, and you, you know, you say an adult, but sometimes I think it's funny that we call an 18 year old an adult because <laughs> I have an 18 year old and I'm like, what? It's he does true, not, not he cannot make all these decisions. Uh-uh. This isn't real. It wasn't, it wasn't good. Okay. So what age did you meet Brindy? I met Brindy at 24. Okay. Yep. Tell just a little bit about, I mean, I know this story, but tell me a little bit about the story so everyone else can know. This is such a fun story. I love this story. Actually, I, I am th- this story to me is where, for the first time, I think I had to step up, and to tie in like the drinking and drug and stuff, that stuff had to step aside, mm-hmm. and I had to like be a man. You you figured out what was the most important. Yeah, I I, I figured out who I was, and it wasn't by chance. It was. The universe, God, whatever, You're in showing the... me who I was. Yeah. So I'm 24 years old. Um, came out of kind of a weird relationship. And then I met Brindy. And we hit it off like instantaneously. There was like this intense chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, emotionally, spiritually, physically. Mm-hmm. And very early on, we became kind of hot and heavy as far as like our physical connection. And we, I got her pregnant six weeks after we met. Yeah, so pretty quick into the relationship. Yeah, we didn't mess around. No. And it wasn't, it, it wasn't um, on purpose. No, I mean, you you don't think about, wait, a baby can come out of this? Tell me what teenager that thought crosses their mind. No, it was not on purpose for sure. And then so you've been been dating six weeks. You have a baby coming. Well, I didn't know she was pregnant, but like we didn't know she was pregnant until she was like 10 weeks. So we'd been dating for several months. Okay. But at the same time, even still, three or four months of dating, you're still young. Babies. And then it's like the typical, do we keep it? Do we get married? Do we not get married? Do like, how did that process go through your head? It was, it was was excruciating. The, the decision-making at that point as a 24 year old child (laughs) Mm -hmm. to just have to step up and be like, listen, this isn't about me. This isn't about her. This is about a family. Mm-hmm. And it's not even about a kid anymore. And that was something that I that I figured out, I think, at a young, young age. Because 24 is young. Mm-hmm. It's just like, listen, dude, talking to myself, like, you have to be the guy that supports a family or get out of here. Like, you're not going to bail on her, but... It, or give the baby up? Is that your baby, thought? Well... <clears throat> And this this is this is tougher to talk about because I think if, if Brindy were here, she would have a hard time talking about this, and mm-hmm. I, I kind of do too. But there is a lot of pressure. But it's it's the reality it of is. this is what happens to people. If you're, if you're having a baby, mm-hmm. you've got pressure from your parents. You got pe- pressure from her parents. You've got pressure from any type grandparents. of grandparents. Grandparents. I mean, I'd say any type of even a religious institution. Um, friends, friends are like, what are you doing? You know, I mean, there is a lot of pressures. It was was so lonely. Not only, there's so many things happening during this time. I, at this time also, 
I had lost my apartment because my friend got married and I didn't have a place to live because I was just so wrapped up in all the shit that was going down. Mm-hmm. Like it was just chaos and I was just swirling or spiraling. And, um, I remember, so I actually lived in the, the storage unit where we stored all of our band gear. That's awesome. <laughs> Was, That's really safe. It was very safe. <laughs> so I was legit homeless for a while. And there was a dark point after Brindy was going to have the baby where I remember sitting in the band space and I wasn't high or drunk or anything like that. I just remember sitting there just thinking, you know what? She's probably going to be a better mom than I would be a dad. She's probably, they, they'd be better without me. And I literally, for like, hours thought about how I was going to kill myself. I see. And that's, I think we, we all do that to ourselves at some point in our lives. How did you pull yourself out of that and say, regardless of what I'm thinking, either switch your thought process or regardless of what I'm thinking, I'm not going to do that. I, I don't even know if there was anything that I did. It wasn't even like a moment where I was like, no, that's stupid. It was just, I, I don't know why. I just didn't do it. Because I, I knew there was some reason that I was on earth. I was here. Like, I've always felt like I have, like, a purpose, mm-hmm. like a meaning. And I didn't forget about that in that moment. It was more just like, I don't matter enough. And so I shouldn't be here anymore. I just think there are so many, and I can tell you honestly, myself included, I have definitely had those moments where you're like, you know what? I'm, I'm making it worse. I'm making this harder without me. They, they can do it. They can get along without me. They can handle this. And it's such an awful thing to think because the truth of it is no, everybody matters. That's never the case. No. And nobody is better off without any the any specific person in their life it doesn't matter nobody is better off without these people and know, knowing what i know now as you know have, after being educated and and working with suicidal persons for years um i i get why the brain does that and it's basically the ultimate fight or flight mechanism mm-hmm. where there's a part of our brain that's there to keep us alive. It's the survival part of our brain. And once that part of our brain starts to kind of flip the script on us, basically what happens is normally fight or flight means I'm going to fight my problems or I'm going to run away from my problems. This is this ultimate act of flight, ultimate desperation where my problems are because of me. They're not making me worse. I'm the problem now and I need to run away from me and take my own life. And so I think... That dark moment helped me gain more empathy for the people that I work with than almost almost any other, almost any other. Mm-hmm. But there were definitely several dark moments in that time period that were really really rough, and I felt very alone. And what? How long is this time period? Um, so from when you knew she was pregnant till you got married. Let's let's just go there first. Cool, how cool. how long was we that? We got married in February. And she, and we had the baby in May. We had Ezra in May. May how 30th how did May you navigate February. through the pressures and maybe the comments, the harsh things from everyone outside of you and Brindy? My aunt helped a lot. My aunt was my she's my um, my dad's sister. She's like your second mom. Yeah, she's awesome. And. Um, I'm kind of like her pseudo son. Because before before all this, um, my my cousin died, and he was my best friend. I was gonna say he was not just your friend; he no, was he like was. a brother. Yeah, we did everything together. And before before I met Brindy. What age were you when I, he got sick? I was sick? 22. This is right after I got back from my mission. Okay. I was 22 years old. and uh, So he was the same age? He were the, yeah, we're, he was just a little bit older than me. His, his birthday was in October when I was in June. And uh, 
you know, we've been together since birth, family vacations, every Christmas, every, and we talked all the time. We would hang out for weeks on end. We partied together. We did everything together. Me and this guy, we were so tight. He was literally like the best friend like you could ever have. Mm-hmm. And 22 years old, you know, he, so before I went on my mission, he was diagnosed with cancer, melanoma. And, um, I remember, I actually remember the day he was diagnosed. I was working with my grandfather at his house in Coronado and he got a phone call and I just remember his eyes got so wide and I was just, just freaked out, freaked out because I was 18 and then I called my cousin and I talked to him and he was just so hopeless and everybody else was trying to have all this hope and like he's going to live and he's going to make it stage four cancer. Stage five is like terminal. Mm-hmm. And so he just fought it. He fought it until I came back from the mission. And we spent a couple nights together, you know, here and there. Because he lived up in Northern California. I lived in Southern California. Then I went away to college. And um, he passed away. I was 22. He was, I think he was 22 also. Maybe a little bit older. You said you spent some nights with him talking. What was that like? Like, did he feel like he was going to die and... Yeah. Was it went. was it kind of like his insight to this is what's gonna happen here? Yeah, it was strange to hear a twenty year old twenty two year old guy with such wisdom. Because there was like me that was like, No, dude, you're gonna fight this. Like we're mm-hmm. gonna make this together, like I'm back, like I'm sorry I wasn't here. That's a whole other thing I can't even get into. Maybe we'll do it on another podcast because that's that's a hard thing. But I just care a lot of shame and guilt about like not being there for him because I left to go on a mission for the church and that was supposed to be helpful and blah, blah, blah. And it did, I don't know if it helped or not. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But I came back. He still died. But for you, you feel like there. you missed out on I missed that out time. On a ton. I missed out on a ton with him. I could have had tons of time with him. Who knows? Maybe I would have gotten into a lot of trouble. <laughs> Probably. That's what happened. Who knows? But what was some of the wisdom he gave you? He, so we, we were laying there in my, in my, um, in my house. He was in one bed. I was in another. We were just talking. And I remember him just saying, like, listen, man, like, I know you want me to fight this thing, but I'm not going to live. And it was just brutal. Yeah. I just remember thinking, like, there's no way, you know, like. You're young. You're 20-something years old. Like, you don't get to die, man. Like, that's not fair. That's that's wrong. And he was just so, you know, he, he had accepted it. And. He kind of helped me. <laughs> well, I was going to say, helped you accept it. Yeah. Yeah. Did he have anything that, you know, because I, I always feel like when people know that they're going to die, they're kind of like, look, this is what I want for you. This is what you need to want for you. Or something, you know, where it's, I don't know, something that stands out or something you always think about when you think of him. He, he just always made everybody laugh. He was one of the funniest people you've ever met in your entire life. Like, I wish, I, because I have all this, this whole life without him, this, this long life without him. And I wish people could meet him because he just, everywhere he went, he had this amazing laugh and he would, he was the funniest guy. I mean, he was con, dude, we would get into so much trouble together, just <laughs> being fun, just doing dumb, being dumb stuff. Being obnoxious teenagers. Just. Just because we love to laugh, just because we wanted to laugh. So he's he's in the worst time yeah. of his life. He knows he's going to die, and he's making you he's laugh. He's making us laugh, and that's what he did. And he just he just kept everyone bright, and he was the guy that would still light up the room even in his last days. And to this day, one of my biggest regrets is that I wasn't there when he died. Where were you? I was in college at a freaking dorm room you know like yeah just being a normal just being a, like ignoring it yeah i guess i don't know what else i could have done at that time there didn't really have the resources to get out there but just yeah, as you get older you're like i wish you, I, you never realize that time you missed out i should on. i should have gone out there and said goodbye i should have been there in that room when he passed away and i wish i would have and now i mean i did i'm i wasn't there and that sucks and i think a little i have a little chip on my shoulder where i'm just trying to like live a little bit for him mm-hmm. and it gives me energy, you know, which is awesome. Yeah, I think so. 
Because he, he, if he would have lived, he would have done, who knows, he would have done amazing things. There's nothing wrong, and that's the thing too, I, I think there's nothing wrong with having someone, you know, on the other side or whatever that you feel like you're living for. Because otherwise, it's like that, that helps give purpose to us when we're here. It's you like, know, you know that. Yeah, it's like you've got to, yeah. you want to make them proud. You want them to, yeah, be proud of who you are, who you've become because of it. For sure. So, how soon after, um, because just so Justin passes away. Yeah, I'm 22 years old. Justin passes away. And now you've got 24 years old, get Brandy pregnant. And you've got his mom. I got his mom who's there. Who she's given us, you know, advice, helping me through it because I didn't know how to tell my family. I didn't know what to do. And so I, she just, she helped me. She helped me a lot and she got me through one of the toughest things I've ever been because I've never been, never been that alone ever. Never have been since. I don't know if I ever will be again. I hope I'm never that alone ever again. But that was, that was a dark, dark time. What was some of the advice that she gave you and Brindy? Because I know that she was important for Brindy, too, because it helped her. She just said, this This isn't about anybody else but you. You have to do what's right for you. You. This is your family now. It, it started. You've started a family. You didn't mean to. My grandpa came up to us one day when we were down in California after it had kind of like come out that we were having the baby and we were still kind of deciding what to do. And my grandpa, he's like so wise. He pulls us aside and grabs me and Brindy. And he's very intense and very stern. And he looks at both of us. He says, you know what, you guys? It's it's time for the silliness to be over. You need to decide what you want to do. You need to commit to being together forever. Mm-hmm. Or you need to part ways. And you got to decide what you want to do. And it's that simple. And nobody had ever said it like that before. Just so matter of fact, and it was really clear like get cut. in or get out. Like yeah. figure this, figure this out. Let's go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was this really clear moment. We kind of both looked at each other, and I think in that moment, without saying anything, we both were just like, "I think we know what we need to do." And our relationship, as you know, <laughs> is like the tightest, most intense love in a marriage you could possibly imagine because we went through that really difficult thing. And so that's why we talk about, you know, I talk about finding strength in the suffering moments. Like these dark, dark moments are the things that give me the most meaning and the most purpose and the most drive and the most ability to be able to empathize with people who've also suffered. And that's what I do every single freaking day is I look at people and I see this suffering in their eyes and it is just this deep, sorrow that they're experiencing as they lament their life, their choices, their losses, their traumas, their, and and the traumas we're talking about, right? Like every single day I talk with a person about being raped or molested as a child every day without fail. That would be so hard to hear. And, and that's not easy for me, but I don't care because it's way harder for them. And I get my level of suffering and I, it's, great and so I'm able to take that and just kind of juxtapose it and see that their suffering is so deep and their sorrow is so powerful and I just sit with them and just look at them and just say I get it there's nothing wrong with suffering Mm -hmm. like it's a part of this human experience yeah quit ignoring your suffering I mean I don't can tell you how many times a day I say that to people or pushing it aside. Yeah. I feel like that's something we're so good at. Oh, yeah. We're so good at pushing it aside. It's not happening. It's not happening. Nope. If I just ignore it, it totally goes away. Yeah. It never goes away. This wonderful philosopher named Rumi, R-U-M-I, Rumi, said, the cure for the pain is the pain. It's actually it. on the back of the coin that we give to everybody as they graduate, the program that we run up in Draper. That's so awesome. Yeah, and that's what it is. So that's the thing with you and Brindy. It was... We're, I mean, you're going through hell because I'm sure, you know, I've, I've heard her side and I know that, um, as much as you were deep, dark, it was rough on her too. So you have all these outside influences, things going that are hard and you two decide to come together and kind of fight it together. Like 
you know, screw everyone else. We're going to do this. We're going to make this happen. Yeah. I really want to say a bad word right now, but I'm going to. We were basically just like, F the world. Yeah. <laughs> this is me this and is you. This is us. This is me and you, babe. Everybody else can go to hell. Mm-hmm. If you want to, you can, you're either with us or yeah. you're not. If you want to be a part of this? Well, yeah. then join in and bring some positive energy. Otherwise, get the hell out. Yeah, because we, we're going to, like, Brittany and I are weird. Like, we're not in this world to, like, oh, just kind of be here. No, we're here to, like, <sighs> sorry. You're going to save the world, Matt. I've already called it. <laughs> yeah, I tell. Yeah, I tell my clients all the time. I say, I don't mess around. You come to my office. You're getting better. Mm-hmm. You probably should talk now. Cause talk <laughs> no, I, I don't. I want you to talk <laughs> while you're crying. I want everyone to I I feel what I feel being in the room. I can't talk. So here's my thing. So now we've, we've at least heard the gist, right, of your story. At what point? I know you said when you're young, and I know that you wanted to be, you want to help people. You always want to help people. At what point did you say, I'm going to be a therapist? Um, when I was a TLS with those kids. Okay, so being around those kids, I was really good at it. Like I just naturally just was like gifted. I could sit down with the, the my favorite kids were the kids that everybody else hated, couldn't do anything with. These kids the would rough ones. freak the hell out. So like, there was one time, Bethany, I walked into a room and I saw this kid, and he was literally, I kid you not, he, we this kid was a cutter. So cutting, some of you may know what cutting is, but basically, mm-hmm. so much pain in your life. The only way. You want to physically feel the pain. Release pain mm-hmm. is by cutting your arm and watching the blood come out, and there's this euphoric feeling that comes from it. Mm-hmm. We'd taken all this, all the implements away from this kid. We made him cut his fingernails, and he wanted to cut. And I remember walking into the room, and I walked into this room, and I see this kid on the bed, and he had this crazed look in his eyes, and he was gouging his arm as hard as he possibly could, just raking it, just blood. Like coming out of the arm from his fingernails, he's just scratching his arm as hard as he could, and and I just remember other people, all the other staff members there were looking, and they're like, I don't know what to do, mm-hmm. and I was like, I know exactly what to do. I'm going in. I'm gonna hug the kid. And I just went in. I hugged him. I grabbed his arm. I didn't let him scratch his arm anymore. And he started crying. He put his head on my shoulder, and he just started crying. And I just sat there and held him. So at and that's my that's my gift. That's and that's, what I do. Yeah. And so at that point you're like, this is this is what I'm doing. Yeah. This is how So tell me, do you have a story? I'm sure you have lots of stories. I'm full of stories. I want a story where you said, I mean, was that the time when you're like, This is it, this is what I'm doing? Or when you said, I'm good at this. Like I connect. I know I can do this. Do you have a story that felt you made made as I'm <laughs> that made you really feel like I can do this. I'm going to do this. Um, I, at that Telos place, I was always really good at connecting with the kids. But when I went to grad school, uh, my first year in graduate school, I had an internship and I worked for um, adult probation and parole, which um, basically is guys who are drug addicted who are coming out of prison or jail and they are on probation or parole and they need basically to be therapy. And so I'd be their therapist and it was free and it was provided by the state. It's actually a pretty cool program. And I remember sitting with one guy and it, therapists hear this all the time, but I felt like this was really genuine. This guy had been in and out of prison his whole life. Um, and he just said, I've never told anybody this before. And he just opened up and he said, when I was, you know, I was three years old, I was raped and it was by my father and I was for years and I've never told anybody this and I don't know why, but I feel like I can tell you and I don't know what to do. And I remember thinking, I, I can do this. (laughs) Like we're going to, we're going to help you. You're going to be better. And he was despondent and hopeless and he, you know, he's a severe heroin addict. 
And that and that's the thing with with addiction. You know, there's it's it's about eight in ten men and nine in ten women. The statistics vary. Have childhood trauma, usually rooted in sexual trauma. If you're diagnosed in with substance use disorder, so okay. an, an addict is kind of the layman's term, but basically you have substance. That's how they're disorder. dealing with their trauma, yeah, and that's what that's what they do. And I got that early on, and in the world of addiction, it's people still don't get it. Like even you go to twelve step meetings, twelve step meetings they don't talk about that. They even don't. though that is the root the of root. where this all started, and so that's why Deer Hollow, where I work now is like the perfect fit. And Amy, who you guys heard two weeks ago, she's like my sister from another mister mm-hmm. because she thinks the same way I do. And it's all about the root cause, the trauma. And I don't care how awful it is. I want to help these people and I'll listen to it and I'll yeah. hear it and I'll sit with them and I'll cry with them and I'll hold them and I'll do whatever it takes. I won't hold them. That's actually an ethical violation. You really can't do that. Can't do that. <laughs> I'll give them a high five. Um, but, you know, I'll hold the space. Yeah. And that... That moment with that guy um, was definitely a pivotal part of that. Another one, I had this guy who, he'd, he'd been, I just have so many people that they just go into treatment. And I'm not special, there's nothing that I did is special, but for whatever reason, people connect with me, people open up, and they get better, and they change, and it works. And I feel successful at it, and it gives me great joy, and it gives me great purpose, and I find a lot of meaning in it. And So here's my next question. That's awesome. What made you start this podcast? Because this was 100% your idea. I got a little drug into it, and thank you very much. I You were not it. reluctant at all. But True story. Okay, I'm interrupting here. Mm-hmm. I texted Bethany. I said, hey, I have this cool idea. I want to start a podcast. Do you want to do it? And not, I didn't even hesitate. You're like, yeah, I'm in. What do I got to do? I did hesitate. I did hesitate because I was not. like, you texted like two seconds. I later. asked Kevin and I said, well, because here's the thing. You guys are my best friends. Like you're some of our best friends. You need help with something. I'm in. Yeah, you know that. I know. And so you knew, I felt like you manipulated me. You knew <laughs> you're like, Bethany will do, if it's going to help me and my family, uh, she's all in. No, because you're just good at it. What did you want to come? Why? Why'd you do this? What did you want to come out of this? I, we got to have more people. So I'm going to tell a little story. The first I'm podcast excited. we did, <laughs> I was super nervous. I'd been arguing with Kevin all day because I was like, I can't, I can't do this. And that's how I react. I just start getting angry and we fight, you know, that's me. So I come into Matt's office and I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I can do this. I really don't know if I can handle this. And Matt tells me, he's like, listen, I, let me tell you some of the things I listen to and hear on a daily basis. And he just told me one story about a girl and it was a sexually molesting type story. And he's like, that's why we're doing this. It's like, we we're going to help people. And I remember thinking right then I was like, oh my gosh, I, this isn't about me. This is about everybody else. This is about helping everybody we can. And so I told him, I'm like, okay, let's do it. And we started recording like two minutes later. But I was just like, I can't, I can't even imagine hearing what you hear. So the fact that you want to turn that into something to help everybody else and give other people tools to handle the stuff they're going through every day. I, I freaking love it. It's awesome. Thank you. Thanks for doing this with me. <laughs> I know. Very few people are willing to follow me down my crazy ideas path, <laughs> but you're one of them. But to answer your question directly, like people need help, and there's not a whole lot of avenues to get it. Therapy is extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. It's basically reserved for rich white people. Like that's just let's just call a spade a spade here. That's yeah. how therapy works. You want to go to treatment, you gotta have insurance. You have to. You have to have a job. Guess who doesn't ever have jobs? Uh, homeless people. Yeah. The people that don't have money, the people that really need it the most are probably the ones that need it. Yeah. And we, and so this is free. I, I, you know, and Kevin and I have become super good friends and we talk a lot about, you know, marketing and what you can do to market yourself. And he's a very successful business person. And, and what I want to market isn't me. I want to market hope. Yeah. And this is free hope. 
Yeah. It's, like, it's 45 minutes to an hour of hope for somebody. And who knows what it'll do? I have no idea. But I love the pebble in the pond analogy. It's the tiniest little pebble can make these massive ripples that can reach the edge of the shore. And we're that little tiny pebble. And who knows how, who this will affect and who it'll help. And Oh, I'm a podcast, you know, nut. I love them and yeah, I listen to them fantastic. all the time. And my thing is always like, you know, I've said I love to read in the morning or listen to a podcast. Like what better way to start a day than to hear a story of someone else, maybe that's gone through something hard that gives hope for you where you're like, I got this. I got this day because I don't have to deal with that. And this person did and they did. Look how they got through it. I can do this. I'm going to get through this day too. Yes. (laughs) That's the point. Exactly that. Yeah. And so I'm just hopeful. I mean, I guess my story's kind of cool. I don't really know. It's, it's okay. But the more, more I've wanted to tell it, kind of reluctantly no <laughs> so that people can know like this is not just a, this like frivolous endeavor yeah we're not, we're not playing around fun. no no this is a, this to me is a big deal and I want you guys who are listening I want you to share it I want you to give it to people I want you to bring people in and and you know if you have ideas we want to hear from you if you have or, people who you think that need to be on like tell us like, yes we want this is not I know we're in episode four and I'm super grandiose in the way I think about things, <laughs> but that's why I'm successful, I think. And, and what do you guys have for us that we need to do? We want to know because like I said, well, there's so many people out there that have been reason. through something really hard yeah. and they figured out how to overcome it. Oh, everyone should hear everybody. that story because that is important to all of us. We Everyone's all need story. to know. And everybody's story matters. Yeah, we don't, I mean, we're not going to get huge, massive, famous people on this no. podcast. It's just not going to happen. That's that's the point. The point is, you know, you work out next to Sete and you see this dude's deadlift almost 700 pounds. You're like, oh my gosh, that guy's crazy. And then you hear his story and you wonder what he does. And you're like, whoa, that's amazing. And these yeah. people, you live next to them. Who knows what your neighbor does? People's stories blow my mind every day. And they're incredible. And they need to be heard. I would say too, so, you know, I'm obviously always a push for therapy because I've seen it in my life make huge changes. Um, but to plug Matt a little bit, he, Matt, uh, was a therapist for my oldest son and he was having a rough time. I mean, he came to Kevin and I one night just crying and was like, I don't, I don't know what to do. I'm so lonely, depressed. I just, I don't know what to do. And he's like, you know, give me some medicine or something. Like, help me feel better. And so we asked him if he'd go see Matt, and he did. And it, it took a little while. And But I re- there was one night that he, Kevin and I were just in our room just talking and, you know, getting ready for bed. And he came back from meeting with Matt, which I never knew when he met with Matt because he has a car. They'd set it up. I didn't, I wasn't involved other than to, you know, send the payment. <laughs> <laughs> but... He came into our room and he just started talking to us and we're like, Hey, you know, what, what's up? What do you, cause he never does that. That's really odd for him. And he just starts talking to us and telling us about his day, telling us, and Kevin's like, you know, what, what prompted this? And he's like, you know, after talking with Matt for the last couple of few months, I just realized I really want to work on the relationships that matter to me and your relationship matters to me. And I just like, my heart just like melted. And I was like, oh my God, like Matt, you, you gave me my son back. Cause I was like, he was so awesome. Anyways. He is awesome. He's such a good kid, but when you see your kids hurt, it's awful. So anyways, just so you all know, Matt gave me my kid back. So thank you. He's awesome. Thank you. You're amazing too. (laughs) Okay, you can wrap this up now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, friends, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Finding Strength. That was not, I was not supposed to cry on this one. This was not mine. (laughs) That's how it goes. Well, guys, I thank you for listening to my story. And like I said, any feedback you have, please reach out to either Bethany or I. Yes, thank you very much. We loved 
I loved hearing Matt's story. I've heard it before. So I just really wanted everyone to hear it because I thought it was incredible. Um, yeah, I'd finish it off, Matt. If you don't have a therapist, you let us know because, and if you don't need or feel like you need a regular therapist, then you listen to this podcast because you will get some free therapy here. I promise. I feel it every time we're here. Um, also, you know what I'm going to say. Everybody needs to go out and brighten a day. There you go. That's how, that's how we should start our day. That's how we should end our day. It's awesome. Brighten a day, people. Thank you for listening. Well, that was fun. Thanks. Yeah. Everyone got to hear you cry and me cry. Double whammy today. Double the cry. <laughs> I guess that makes for a good sit-down episode session thing. Who knows? I had... Fun's probably the wrong word. I'm glad you guys got to hear my story. It'll be uh, a while before you hear it again. I'm, I'm much more comfortable in the interviewer's seat. <laughs> I'll get. I'll keep getting vulnerable though. I haven't figured out where I'm comfortable yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, anything I uh, just finish up with? Yeah, I just want to give um, give a shout out to Brighten a Day. I uh, just want to let people know it's what we do. That is my foundation, and we help families who have lost children, and we help by connection, sometimes financially, sometimes just. Um, giving them something that gives them hope and happiness in life. Uh, we are a nonprofit organization, and also we have no paid uh, members or no one gets paid. Every single penny you donate to Brighten a Day goes straight to the foundation. Technically not a nonprofit. You're a charity. Oh, that's a, that's a better word. Charity, meaning like there's no profit whatsoever, which is true. It's not. Yeah, nobody gets paid. But it's a 501c3, so... Anything you donate to Brighten a Day goes directly to families who've lost children. Yes. So click the donate button, brightenaday.org. Me. Um, hit me up on Facebook, Matt Quackenbush, comma, MSW. Hit me up on my website, MatthewQuackenbush.com. I have blog posts on there, articles that I've written, and some have been published in different places. So you can check me out there. And if you want to reach out to me, you can hit me up through Messenger. Um, and if you need a therapist and you're in the Utah area, please come see me. I would love to work with anybody who is ready to take that step and change their life because I guarantee it will be well worth your time for sure, for sure. Yeah. And also, I, I love how interactive you guys have been so far uh, when Matt kind of announces on Facebook yeah. who we're going to meet with. I love hearing the questions and your thought process because sometimes when we're sitting in here, if it's just our own questions, I feel like it doesn't reach as many people. When we can get questions and thoughts from other people, it really helps to get it out there and help, you know, get the attention and the help for as many people as we can. For sure. We appreciate everything you guys have done for us. Feedback, support, getting it out there. We love our audience, our listeners. You guys are fantastic. Thank you. Yes. And if there's any stories that need to be told or you guys want to be heard, let me know. Thanks, you guys. <laughs>